tune in to Pacey Performance Bite Size. So this clip comes from an episode with Angus Ross on eccentric training. So Angus is very well known for his views and his experience and his knowledge on eccentric training, programming, when it should be emphasized, when it should be de-emphasized, how it should differ different populations, etc. So it's a great clip coming up with Angus. But I quickly want to say a big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today. So if you're looking for a free AMS to allow you to collect subjective data, visualize it and present it back to players and coaches, check out AMS Lite by Rock Daisy. You can find out more at rockdaisy.com. So when it comes to when it comes to programming these this eccentric work, does that differ between athletes i mean i know you're working with track and field but you work potentially working with other speed yep. and power athletes as well how does that if so i know that's a big question there's a lot of variation in there probably yeah but how does that differ yeah look it's, it's it's i'm lucky i don't i don't work with big squads i work with individuals which probably makes you know make i'm very lucky in that space and i, and I know that and uh so we can i can make a mistake and spend the next day changing it for that person on the next session and, and uh rather than you know they're one of 30 and we just go through and this is what we do um, so yeah, it definitely differs between individuals, people that are, um, you know, some people I've got, I've got two, two shot putters in New Zealand that I've, that I've done work with in times. And one of them is, um, off the charts, explosive, um, like ridiculous, um, set multiple world junior records, um, as, and he, and he, but the interesting thing is, and the other one is, is not, is still explosive, not quite as explosive as that, um, bigger work capacity, um, and can produce enormous eccentric force the other one the other ones he's a sort of probably doesn't have the, the, the contractile stuff as good as the, you know um the explosive guy but his um the stretch shortening cycle stuff is brilliant you know he, he can do he can load load tissue eccentrically absorb it and pop uh, so they yeah they're just different and the the guy that has this amazing concentric explosive power um is pathetic eccentrically in relative terms you know despite having you know bigger lift numbers and all these other things um, so yeah, um, one will tolerate, can tolerate and uses it and likes it. One doesn't like it. Uh, it's not his thing. Um, so yeah, you, you just have to adapt and, and, and put in, um, you know, what they can tolerate and, and, the, and the, some of the explosive guys can't tolerate any, any near as much as, as some of the others, some that are probably slightly less explosive, but, um, so, so yeah, look, I don't, I don't think it's a hard and fast rule. Um, I guess in female athletes as well, I've got some female throwers, um, and it's the same pattern, but I, I guess you know, there's, there's, in terms of the published literature, there's, there's this stuff that shows there's a protective effect of estrogen, and, and that they have um, that perhaps recover and don't get the same damage uh, as some of the male athletes. But that said, um, you know, one of one of my female throwers uh, is really explosive, and uh, she, she certainly it certainly cooks her. We don't do ridiculous volumes of it um, with her either because it just um, I just we get too much in trouble from the technical coaches that they can't throw for a week. So um, and and I don't think it's worth it. Like you know, all of these things are a balance. We're not. It's not about making somebody a better gym athlete. It's about making somebody a better athlete. And uh, you know, I think we we can never lose sight of of that. And in, in my role, that that um, better gym numbers don't mean anything. Better throwing distance or better speed or better whatever else is the only thing that matters. And so um, we're just part of that. We're a small cog in that in that wheel to to sort of help facilitate that pardon my ignorance here but that study that you mentioned was it in 2000 Did you mean, is it, the pad and jones one the, the, the bicep yeah the bicep 
Yeah, 2000, 2001, one or the other, in that era okay. anyway, yeah. Has yeah. that been replicated since? Um, not directly. And, and, and the funny thing is nobody's tried it in that quite as tight a fashion as that. Um, I know there's a group um, talking about doing it at the moment, um, but no, it has, and there's, there's been a few studies which have shown uh, preferential hypertrophy of, um, of you know, the sort of the 2B, two, two, two 2A two, two stuff as, as opposed to type 1 with eccentric training, uh, but it hasn't been replicated. Um, but nobody's tried directly as far as I can see in terms of that tight um, methodology. Um, so, yeah, look, yeah, hard to know, hard to know. I mean, certainly there's, there's, a, there's a paper, um, who was it? It's from Jim Martin's lab in, um, in the States uh, that did eccentric bike. Uh, he was, he's was he been a big proponent of the eccentric bike and they've done a couple of studies there and, and um, you know, and they were doing optimal cadence, which is a, um, on, on, the, on a uh, inertial erg, which has been a, um, which we've used a little bit too, but um, we do use. Um, and one of the, one of the early studies, a Houtier paper in I think '96, maybe they they used uh, they 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 correlated fiber type and optimal cadence. And this is a bit of a drawn out story, but the the, the um, sorry right. <laughs> the so it's a quasi non invasive metric to to assess fiber type, you could say. Um, now, if you um, if you do some eccentric training and then you have a period of rest, and you might get a shift towards uh, a faster optimal cadence. Does that mean better fiber type? Possibly, uh, probably. Um, so you look, as you know, in sport, it's it's, it's quite hard to um, be definitive of, um, and that frustrates a lot of people. And I'm <clears throat> not going to give too many straight answers, probably, but um, you need to um, understand the, the the context and and the lay of the land with that stuff. But um, training is a melting pot of a million different things, and um, what was the cause and effect of this? Well, don't know. Um, it seemed to help. But so I did these other five things at the same time, you know, how it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the having influence from Caldeets and, and triphasic training. That brings me on to the next question, which was how is it integrated and how do you program it in and around isometric training? Is it yep. very um, complementary to iso the, the isometric yeah, training look, that you do? It's a good question. And, and again, it's not going to be um, a, a definitive answer. I, I don't have... I don't. I'm not as um, systematic as Cal Dietz probably in, in the way he does. I, I, I'm trying. Like, I, I went and did some some um, some PD with a guy called Jerome Simeon in, in, in France. Who I'm not sure he's he's another one you should interview actually if you haven't if you haven't already. Um, so, say again. Say the name. Jerome Simeon, in France, okay. French guy. <clears throat> Very smart, capable guy. He's the he's the um, the physical preparation guy behind Kevin Meyer, the decathlon world record holder. Um, okay. he's, got, he's got a couple of other um, rock star athletes there. Um, Melina Robert Michon, who's the discus silver medalist from Rio, um, trained out of this this little basement at the bottom of the. It's it's unbelievable. Like you go there and you go, wow, facilities aren't the thing. The people are the thing. This guy's he's good at what he does. But anyway, one of his things was, um, and I've always liked this line, and it seems so simplistic. And at the time, I was like, "What the hell does that mean?" But you know, I said, "Well, how do you how do you?" Because he was periodized. He does isometrics and all these other bits and pieces as well. I said, "Well, how do you periodize that?" And he kind of looked at me blankly, like I was a complete idiot, which I probably was and probably still am. <laughs> um, but he said, "I give them what they need," and it's like, "Huh," which <laughs> makes so much sense. And so, so going back to that, you know, if you look at the isometric training, what does that elicit? Well, it depends how you do the isometrics for a start. And so, if you do um, 
a ballistic one second boom you know isometric into a bar um you're gonna it's it's almost like a plyometric in terms of this is high speed high, high rfd <clears throat> um you're eliciting this um these tenderness adaptations perhaps that are um your your um you're trying to you're making a stiffer a stiffer setup if you do a long duration isometric which is you know maybe a quasi eccentric over you know the, the sort of extreme isos that sort of been popularized by, by a few different people um you're probably you know breaking down some of these cross links and the tenderness and or fascial matrix that you have and and making a um a more compliant tendon maybe slightly more stiffer muscle perhaps but you're, you're changing the, the setup of of what you you've got so um so to answer your question like if you're doing high speed eccentrics um i d wouldn't tend to do isos at the same time because you're eliciting you know, slow ice or long duration isos at the same time because you're probably eliciting a different adaptation um but if you're a guy that has um you know let's say you get groin injuries from throwing which are reasonably common um, then maybe you would do um, fast eccentrics for some of your upper body stuff would, at the same time as you're doing some um you know isos or, or, lo or long duration slow stuff um, for your groin for example um so I, I do do a little bit when I do the slow eccentric stuff in my first phase, I do do some um, isometrics in that block usually um, because I think they are somewhat complementary. When I'm doing fast eccentric work, I wouldn't do, unless it was an example like that groin um, example, I wouldn't, wouldn't uh, marry those two stimulus together because I think they're um, counterintuitive in my mind. And it, it, I might be wrong, but that's just how, I, how I'm justifying it to myself anyway. <laughs> No, that's cool. Interesting. One last thing on the eccentrics. Yeah. And this may be this may be very much um in your mind right now, given that the time of year that we're in, coming to the summer. Around competition and taper periods and how you'd adjust your training, your eccentric focus training, um during this time and, and leading up to, to what's coming in the summer. So so yeah, good question. I, I typically um and it depends on the level of the athlete, but one of the other nice things about eccentric training is there's the the, the period of detraining um it's reasonably robust in terms of detraining and so you you can detrain you know detrain for for a long period of time without really losing a hell of a lot of strength um we do know that that there's in some of the, the sort of ultrasound studies that if you um remove the eccentric stimulus you might lose fascicle length sarcomeres and series which may have a you know and, and we're adding one plus one to get four here probably but um you may lose contractile speed as a result of that. So um, there's a couple of papers, and, I, and I, the name escapes me off the top of my head, but it might come to me. But um, we do know that you can do a minimum amount of eccentric work and maintain fascicle length. Uh, there's a couple of papers with a couple of Nordic studies with the Nordic hamstring stuff, which sort of show that you can do, and I, I want to say something like eight contractions a week was enough to maintain, you know, it's two sets of four, one set of four on Monday, one set of four on Thursday, happy days, you, you, you're covered. So if there's something that I'm really concerned about, then we'll we'll keep that in. But generally, we'll we'll remove um, the eccentric load a significant period of time out from from training. If we've got somebody that's really strong, I might remove it further out um, to try and elicit the sort of fiber type overshoot as well, um, and get rid of any eccentric depression which you can get in terms of the damage damage and and um, so. Um, but again, it will vary between individuals. The females, I tend to keep it in a little bit later. They recover more quickly, um, and I'm, I'm being very generic here, but um, keep it in a little bit later. Um, what some of our throwers, we might do eight weeks before a, before a major comp when they've done no eccentric loading 
of any significance. So they might have done their two times four a week on a couple of efforts, but that'll be it. Um, so, um, so yeah, I, I think it, it's you've got to be careful in a competition period because it is damaging. It, it can de be depressive, um, and it might m mess with your you know your proprioceptive stuff if you if you push the boat out too hard on it, and and, and then that's um, yeah obviously a bad thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just one thing that you mentioned there about levels of athlete. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking people may listen to the last 35 minutes and go, I've got these under 17s yeah. girls who are yeah. brand new to the gym. I'm going to smash them with this. This sounds fantastic. We need to obviously need to be careful and, and hang back. Like how, how does, how does level change? What, how you think about this? Well, look, I, I think as I said, eccentric is this very powerful stimulus, right? So, um, it's kind of that whole rush to the end zone mentality, isn't it? Like, do, do you do you go, I've got all these tools in my toolkit, do I use them for my under 17 year old girls that have never seen the gym in their life? Or do I just go, I can go generic as hell, I can do three by 10, you know, squats, bench press and pull-ups, and I probably get results for the next three years without having to worry about anything clever. And then I can spend all my energy coaching technique, form, um, the skills of the sport, um, whatever else it is. And I'm, I'm, and maybe that's conservative, and maybe it's, a, it's, it's a dumb idea. I don't know, but I, I tend to think, well, keep these tools in your toolkit till you need them. Um, and, and like, so we, yeah, there's a whole lots of things that are reasonably advanced. You can do electrical stimulation, you can do this eccentric stuff, and high speed eccentric stuff, and blah blah blah. But do you need to do them with the, the underage athlete? Um, because the last thing you want is somebody that has their peak of their career at 18. You know, that's that's kind of depressing. So, so keep some of these things until they need them. And and you know, it's nice to see. People doing personal bests at 27, 28, you know, 29, 30, like, great. Um, is that, is, and I, you know, I tend to think, the other thing I would say is um, <clears throat> when somebody's um, strong enough, and and if there's a, I mean, this is a hypothetical line of strong enough. And so, you know, some of the people I work with are leech hoppers. Let's say, let's say that's 180 kg bench press for, for a generic, easy, understanding exercise. And if, if you can bench 182 kilos, and that's your personal best. And then we do an eight-week taper where we do almost no lifting. Um, well, you probably you've fallen below the strong enough line. You're probably now benching 160 kilos because yeah, your high-speed velocity might be good, but your your raw grunt has is diminished too. Whereas if I take the guy, the elite guy that's got a 240k bench press, I can do 10 weeks of of ballistic high-speed stuff, and he's still above that. Um, he can still bench probably 200k eight weeks later. Um, and so he's still well above his 180 kg strong enough line, uh, and I, and I that's how I think of it. And, and um, so so I think um, yeah, how you use it will depend on on what they bring. You know, you know give them what they need, Jerome. So yeah, um, you know, simple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that's where that's the thing, isn't it? Like I, I went and saw some of Jerome stuff. I thought, wow, there's levels of um, you know, and you spend time with some of these guys that that, that are really good and. Um, you know, uh, I, I had I was lucky enough to have it. I had ninety minutes with with Dan Paff yesterday on on the on on a Zoom, and um, you know, there's this levels of mastery, aren't there? That the, these guys, they inherently know how how to um, and you know, I'm certainly not there yet, and then that's something that I'm playing with and learning, and um, but it's a privilege to to interact with these guys and and um, you know, learn what what they see, and then try and um, steal some of that IP. Um, so yeah. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So this episode in full from Angus Ross is number 343 and can be found on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today. I look forward to chatting to you next time.